And let's pray before we open and read God's Word together this morning and hear it preached. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning that your mercies are new every morning. That even as we were getting out of our beds and that our feet were hitting the floor, so it was true that your mercy was present. And that's anew and afresh this day. We pray that as we sit here this morning and that as we stand here this morning, that we would experience your mercy anew and afresh. That as the word goes out in this room, as it's read, that it would not return void, that as it is explained and preached, that it would accomplish your purposes. And that we would leave knowing that we have encountered your mercy. We have indeed heard from our God who is enthroned on high. We're thankful that you are a God of such mercy. And oh, please be merciful to us today. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 54. This is the holy, inerrant word of God. And behold... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Last week, we looked at the crucifixion of our Savior, and we looked at His final breaths there on the cross as He died, and His person came under the point of death, even death on a cross, as Paul writes in Philippians And as we come to our passage this week, I want us to see the immediate effects that Matthew highlights that stream from the fact that our Christ, our Lord of glory, the Savior died there upon the cross. What you and I might find interesting is where our minds immediately run when we think about Christ's death on the cross and the immediate implications. That's often not what the gospel writers are highlighting when they come to the death of Christ upon the cross and the immediate ramifications and implications of His death. They highlight things that we would necessarily highlight, I think. 
We see one of those here at the very beginning in verse 51. It's highlighted in all three of what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which bear a lot of similarity with one another. They all immediately upon the death of our Savior go to what Matthew goes to here in verse 51, where he says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, that's not where our minds run. Think of the death of our Savior upon the cross, our minds don't immediately run to, well, the first implication, the first thing that we see on the result of his death is that a curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom and torn in two. But that's what Matthew does, that's what Mark does, that's what Luke does. Why? Our first point of three points this morning from the text, our first point, because the death of Christ opens the way. The death of Christ opens the way. What was this curtain and why was it so important? I think we can assume because these three gospel writers place such an emphasis upon it and because of what the writer of Hebrews writes, that this curtain that is torn in two from top to bottom is one of many curtains that was in the temple, but no doubt this was the curtain that, that sectioned off the holy of holies from the holy place in the temple. It sectioned off. There was a curtain that hung in between the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the Holy of Holies, from the holy place. And the holy place was then separated from the rest of the court of the temple. God had commanded the creation of this curtain in Exodus 26. The instructions there are very clear about what this curtain is to look like. It's called a veil as well there, but this curtain for the tabernacle, what it was supposed to look like, and then that was carried over to when Solomon built the temple, the same curtain was to hang there, and then it is translated to what we call King Herod's temple, the temple of Jesus' day as Jesus dies upon the cross. Again, this curtain hangs between the holy of holies and the holy place. It separates the two. And then the holy place is separated from all of the rest of the temple court. This curtain was ornate by God's instructions. God had commanded that this curtain be created out of fine twined linen, and they were to emboss this curtain with images. And the images were of cherubim. You will remember cherubim are angels, and they are often angels that we see in Scripture that are guarding things. And so you had these cherubim that were embroidered into this curtain that was in between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. This was not the only place that the cherubim were, though. If you were to go inside the curtain, if you were to go from the holy place into the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, if you were to go through that curtain into the holy of holies, you would have met more cherubim. Because there, on the Ark of the Covenant, there at the mercy seat, you would have had two cherubim that were fashioned out of gold with their, ink, their wings stretched up into the air and pointing together in a tip on the top of that mercy seat. 
And it was there that the blood was sprinkled and the high priest would sprinkle it on that day of atonement. The curtain itself was made out of different threads, and God instructed what those threads, the colors of those threads, they were to be blue, and they were to be red, and they were to be purple. They were to be blue to highlight the heavens. They were to be red and purple to highlight the majesty and the kingliness of God. And so when you went into this Holy of Holies, you had this curtain that was marked by blue and red and purple and had cherubim guarding the way. And all of this to represent that within there was the kingly presence of God with His people. But most significantly, one could not approach the Holy of Holies, could not see that curtain, and could not go in without the mind immediately racing back to Genesis 3. Would you think back to Genesis 3 with me? And remember Genesis 1 and 2, and you have God creating Adam and Eve and placing them in the Garden of Eden. And there in the Garden of Eden, they are to reign as his vice regents over the earth. They are to be fruitful, and they are to multiply, and they are to have dominion. You remember that Adam and Eve choose in Genesis 3 to sin against God, to commit an act of cosmic rebellion, to seek to overthrow God as king over them. And as they do, Adam falls, and he falls in sin. And as the catechism says, all mankind descending from Adam by ordinary generation fell with him and in him in that first transgression. All mankind then fell. And remember that God approaches them after they have fallen. There are immediate consequences of their falling. You see it immediately. They recognize that they are naked and they are embarrassed of their nakedness and so they hide themselves in bushes from one another. But most importantly, they hide themselves from God. When God approaches them then in the garden, this God that they had walked with in the cool of the day, this God that they had had intimate fellowship with, this God that they had loved and that they had known and that had known and loved them and that they had had sweet fellowship with, they're now hiding from. And so he comes to them with those questions, though he already knows the answers. And have you done what you were not supposed to do, Adam, Eve? And when they confess to their sin, then God meets out the curse upon them. Man will work by the sweat of his brow, the the labor that he does, there will be thorns and there will be thistles that he has to labor against. The woman, the wife, will desire to rule over her husband. She will experience pain in childbirth. The ground is cursed. The serpent that has tempted them is cursed. And now he has to go on his belly all the days of his life. But that's not the worst. It's not the worst. Their greatest loss is not mentioned. It's not spoken. 
It's just shown and it's just demonstrated. Adam and Eve, in that moment, after God has cursed them, he now does the great act of cursing where he casts them outside of the garden. They're put outside of the garden to the east of it. As a true sign and a true reality that they no longer have uninterrupted, intimate fellowship with this God. They're sinners. And do you remember what God does when He casts them out of the garden? He stations cherubim by the gate to the garden. So if they guard the way so that, quote, no man goes the way to the tree of life. It is this, the curtain in the temple sets off the holy of holies from everything else. It's made from those colors that speak of God's heavenly kingship. It's embroidered with cherubim. This is not a mistake. In fact, it's a wonderful act of grace. Every single person born into this world is a child of Adam. Every single one of us, we have all sinned in him and with him in that first transgression. There is none who does good, no, not even one. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all each turned to our own way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all of us. Thomas Goodwin, an old Puritan preacher, used a famous illustration one time in a sermon where he talked about that there are two giants, and there are two giants that will eventually stand before God, and the one giant and the other giant, they both have a belt around their waist, both of these giants, and on those belts are different hooks, and on those hooks are every single man and woman and child that has ever lived hanging from one of those hooks, on one of those belts, on one of those giants. And he says, the one giant is Adam. Because when you and I are born into this world, we are all, all of us hanging on the belt of Adam. Every single one of us, we fell in him and with him in that first transgression. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. You are born a sinner. You come into this world a sinner. You are clinging to the belt of Adam as a sinner. And our God is a holy God. He cannot and he will not excuse sin. He can't because he's holy. If he excuses sin, then he denies him his very self. He's holy. But in his grace, in his magnificent grace, God institutes an entire ceremonial system so that unclean, sinful people can approach a holy God. From the sacrifice in the garden, when they are in their nakedness, God then covers them with an animal skin. 
from that sacrifice in the garden to the guilt offerings to the sin offerings to the great day of atonement, all of these are great provisions by God so that man can enjoy some slight semblance of what Adam and Eve lost in the garden. Just a slight semblance. And at the very core of this entire ceremonial, this entire ritualistic system is the temple. And at the very center of that temple is the Holy of Holies. And that curtain sets off the Holy of Holies. It is there, that curtain, which is a very real barrier section in it all, no one was allowed into the presence of God where he came down among his people. He would come down and he would fill the temple in the Holy of Holies beyond the curtain as he would meet with his people by their representative as he would come upon that mercy seat where the Ark of the Tabernacle was. And it was only one man on one day, that ceremonial day of atonement, that one man, the high priest alone, who was allowed to enter that one time per year into this holy of holies beyond the curtain. He would take that blood of the lamb, he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat before the Lord there at the Ark of the Covenant. And yet, even the high priest, doesn't have this kind of uninterrupted fellowship with God even when he's in the Holy of Holies. There's a visual barrier even for him in that Holy of Holies. God, by his command in the Levitical law, requires that he go in with incense and that he go in with different coals that are burning. So when he goes into the Holy of Holies, it is filled with smoke and incense. It's covered with smoke and incense. He can't go in before God without there being a cloud between him and God. And you know why he says in the Levitical law when he commands this, the high priest go in with this incense and go in with these burning coals that will provide all the smoke. God says this so that he does not die. He would die otherwise. You see, all this symbolism wasn't mere symbolism. It spoke reality. The curtain was a real sign of the barrier between God and man, a separation between God and man because of our sin in the garden. And when you approach that curtain, you couldn't help but think of it. There's the cherubim guarding the way. Our kingly God, who sits enthroned over heaven and earth, he's within. That sin is our inheritance from Adam. And we're all hanging from his belt, born into this world, hanging from his belt. But you see, the cross changes changes everything. That's why Matthew immediately runs here. Jesus 
breathes his last breath on the cross, and immediately he runs here. This curtain is torn in two. It's torn in two from top to bottom. This barrier between the holy of holies and the holy place and the rest of the court and between all the people and God, it's torn in two. And just so you don't mistake it, it's not torn from the bottom. It wasn't man that did this. No, it is God that ruptures this. And it's not just damage. It is torn apart. temple and all the ceremonial laws governing the worship associated with it have become obsolete with the fulfillment brought in Christ because his death immediately opens the way to God. All can approach God now. All. The other giant in Thomas Goodwin's Illustration, you have the two giants with the two belts and every man, woman, and child hanging from some hook on those belts. The one giant is Adam and the other giant is Christ. And he says, on that judgment day, every single one of us will be hanging from one giant or the other. All can approach God in Christ. That's our first thing. The cross opened the way to God. And it's the first miracle of the text. Christ opened the way to God in his crucifixion. The second miracle associated with the cross here in Matthew is the opening of the grave. The opening of the grave. He says that as Christ died upon the cross, there was an earthquake, and as there was an earthquake, the rocks split. And he says in verse 52 that many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Were these bodies raised? Were they resurrected immediately when Jesus died upon the cross? I don't think so. I think what Matthew is referring to here is that when Jesus raised from the grave, then there were other bodies that raised from the grave as well, and then they went in Jerusalem and they appeared there. And I think that makes sense as we are told that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. It may seem a little out of place then here. Why does Matthew run here to the resurrection? It seems a little like it's out of order, but Matthew wants to make sure that you and I understand something. He wants to press home the fact that the crucifixion immediately leads to the resurrection. You can't separate these two things. It's like when in the evening sermon series where we're talking about the Trinity, and I said, you know, that when you think of the three, you immediately have to then run to the one. And as you think of the one, you have to immediately run to the three. And so it's the same with the crucifixion and the resurrection. As soon as you think of the crucifixion, your mind is to immediately run to the resurrection. And when you are thinking upon the resurrection, your mind is immediately to run back to the crucifixion. And that's what Matthew is pressing home here. We see both the tearing of the veil and the opening of tombs. Jesus' death covers over sin, opening the way to God, and His resurrection conquers death, opening the way to eternal life. Sin's forgiven, death overcomes. Communion with God, everlasting life given. 
Crucifixion opens the way to God. It opens the grave. Two great miracles, but then third we have what I think is the greatest miracle in this text, and it's found in the final verse. I think as children of the Enlightenment, we look at this and we say, oh, we've got earthquakes and we've got rocks splitting, we have dead people raising, and what incredible miracles they are, but that's not the greatest miracle in this text. The greatest miracle is what we see at the foot of the cross with the centurion, that his heart is open. The crucifixion opens hearts. Think about the centurion since his birth, like every single one of us. He is a sinner clinging to the belt of Adam. And then you think about him on this day, on this Good Friday, as he stands at the foot of the cross. He has not budged once to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is standing on guard duty, much like the cherubim. And as he stands there on guard duty, he has heard different things said about Christ. He has seen the plaque that is above Christ's head that says, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews, verse 37. He's heard people go by and mock this king of the Jews. He heard the passers-by screaming out in verse 40, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. He heard in verse 42, the chief priests and the scribes say, He is the king of Israel, let him come down now. And he heard in verse 43, Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. They're all mocking his majesty. They're all mocking his royalty. They're all mocking his kingship. And he hasn't budged the entire day. Now, as he's standing at the foot of the cross, and as he looks up at Jesus and he sees Jesus take that last breath, Matthew says there in verse 54, the he sees the earthquake, and he sees what takes place. And he looks up at Christ, and Matthew says he is filled with awe. He's filled with awe. He's dying. He's now dead. And he's filled with awe. Remember that passage where Peter steps out onto the water to meet Jesus as he's walking on the water. Remember that he is looking to Christ and then when the waves begin to beat and the storms come up and he begins to sink and his faith begins to falter and he begins to sink below the water and he looks to Christ and he yells out to Christ, Jesus, save me. And when Jesus reaches out and he saves him, it says that Peter was filled with awe. And then, do you remember what he says? Truly, you are the Son of God. The centurion is standing at the foot of the cross, and he's looking up, and he sees this dying man take his last breath. And like Peter, he is struck with awe. And what happens? In that moment, Christ has reached out to him and he has saved him. 
says, truly, he is the son of God. That's the miracle of the text. He opened the heart of this man. I find gripping when I think about the gospel stories and the crucifixion and the immediate impact of Christ dying upon the cross is what's fascinating to me and find myself so often gripped by is the two first converts to Christ's crucifixion. You have this thief. He's a robber, and he no doubt was a brigand, and he was no doubt an insurrectionist. He is a hard-hearted sinner through and through. And he believes in Christ while he's dying next to him. And then you have the centurion who is at the foot of the cross, a Gentile. And not just a Gentile, but part of the whole cultic worship of the emperor. He would have needed to be such to move his way up to the office of centurion. He is a pagan worshiper. He is a Gentile and he is an oppressor. And here you have these two hard-hearted men. You have this thief and this robber, this man that is beyond gone, beyond gone, forsaken. He is dying on a cross and he believes. And you have this hard-hearted centurion, this Gentile pagan who looks up at Christ dying upon the cross and he believes. What is God doing? He's laying out before all the world to see, and especially that Jewish mind, and saying, do you not understand? This cross opens up the hardest of hearts. That's the great miracle of the text. Aren't these the three greatest barriers we have in this life? Sin, death, and our flesh? And all three are opened up here. Three applications from these points from this text. First, my friends, the way has been opened for all. If you have not seized upon this Christ, you need to. The way has been opened for all. You need to seize upon this Christ. You're hanging from one belt or another. Watch with interest this week as there were different news stories and videos circulating about some protesters that were approaching different senators with their complaints and with the agenda that they wanted to see these senators pass. They were yelling at them in hallways. They were yelling at them on planes. And then the famous video this week where a couple chased a female senator into a bathroom and continued to yell at her in the bathroom. And as an American, uh, I am mostly embarrassed by the actions of people like this. 
There's a disrespect, there's a lack of general kindness that I think has gripped our nation's interactions with one another, especially with those in authority over us, and frankly, it's just disturbing. There's another part of me that's thankful that no one is off limits. You see, this is the American experience. This is how it was begun. Politicians were to be accessible to their people. There's a pothole in my neighborhood. I live in Holt. It's a vacation destination. It is Shangri-La on earth, except for this pothole. And that pothole, I I detest strongly. Uh, I wish I had one of those red phones on my desk and... President Biden and I were old friends, and I could just pick that up, and I could say, oh, old Joe, would you, uh, would you give a little nudge to uh, the street commissioner in Holt and get this pothole filled for me? That would be a good day, be a really good day. Abraham Lincoln used to do this. It used to be you could do things like this. Abraham Lincoln, when he was in the White House, there were two days a week that he would allow just the average citizen, you and I, to line up in a line outside of his office door, and his secretary would let us in one by one to make our plea before him of what we needed. As our government has grown older, some have now been made off limits. You can't talk to them. You can't even phone call them. You can't email them. You surely can't approach them in any way. There is layer after layer of barriers. With time, it became more complex and it became more complicated. But not with God. Not with God. All the rituals. All the distance, all the inaccessibility for the average person was wiped away with the death of Jesus upon the cross. Gone. You don't have to rely upon some man in the flesh to go before God for you. You can walk right in and you can make your petitions known. You can approach Him without restraint. The way has been made open for you. Like the centurion, you can have your heart open and then it is free access forever. all hang by one belt or another. And if we hang by the belt of Christ, because our faith is in Christ and the way is forever open for us. Second, if you're hanging from the belt of Christ, you are to have every confidence as you come before God. Every confidence. Notice I didn't say you should have every confidence. Notice that I didn't say that you may have every confidence. I said that you are to have every confidence as you come before God. 
How can that be? A holy God, he must uphold righteousness. If he doesn't uphold righteousness and justice, then he isn't true to himself. All injustice will be accounted for. He must do this or he ceases to be God. And every injustice, every sin, every transgression will be held accountable by our holy God. It will either be done on that last day at the judgment seat, or it was done at the cross. And if you were in Christ, then every single one of your transgressions was paid for at the cross. Everyone. And that means that now you have unfettered, uninterrupted access and fellowship with God in Christ. You see, if you and I go sheepishly before God, then we make a mockery of the cross. Don't you dare, Christian, go sheepishly before God. That makes a mockery of the cross. Now, you're to go before Him with boldness and unashamedly. Sing that wonderful hymn. I think it's one of the most jaw-dropping verses and the most jaw-dropping of hymns. And yet it's the most truthful of verses. A hymn, and can it be, where we will sing with full-throated voices in this room and we will say, bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. What right do you have to sing that? Bold, I approach the throne and claim the crown? What right do you have to sing such a thing? You have every right. Every right in Christ. Right, Hebrews said it this way in Hebrews 10. Since we have confidence, confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, you can boldly approach this throne of Christ. And as a Christian, you must. There's no security detail keeping you away. There's no guard against you. You can, like the widow, go time and time before him again and again with your pleas. You never have to pray wondering, did my prayer just hit the ceiling and bounce back to me? You never have to wonder that as a Christian. No, even as the son's prayers are always heard by the father, so your prayers are always heard by the father. There is no barrier between you and your God. None. None. Finally, be gripped with the cross. 
be gripped with the crows. Centurion was gripped by the crows. He looked up at Christ crucified and he was gripped by the cross and he is immediately professing this is the Son of God. The disciples, when they leave the foot of the cross, they are gripped by the cross. They will spend the next some of them it's only months, some of them it's a year or a few years until they are put to death. And they will go out with the message of the cross. They will preach Christ and him crucified. Why? Because they were gripped by the cross. You're to be gripped by the cross. The cross raises us up and it bows us down. It makes our spirits sore and it lays them prostrate. It causes us to praise and it causes us to confess. It becomes for the Christian a way of life. Everything is by the cross. And everything is to the cross. And everything is in light of the cross. There are a lot of things that you and I can spend our lives investing in. There's a lot of things that we can center them upon. A lot of things that we can aim at. A lot of good things. But none of them, none of them are as important as the cross. Martin Luther, the great reformer, used to talk about the theology of the cross. He said that all our theology and all our practice as Christians is to be cross-centric, focused on the cross. And here's my great fear. I look at the church in the 21st century in America, the evangelical church I'm talking about, and I don't feel like we're very cross-centered. At least from my vantage point. We're more focused on social issues and political issues and Netflix and sports and our families and comfort than the cross of Christ. You want to do anything that is lasting, it is done in light of the cross. You want to do anything that's actually a benefit to this world you live in, you do it in light of the cross. You actually want to serve your families and your church well and your community well, you do it by the cross. You actually want to turn this world upside down as it was said of those Christians in the book of Acts. You do it by the cross. They were cross-gripped. It shaped them. It formed them. They lived their lives in light of it. I wonder, if you and I didn't hear the cross preached from this pulpit, how long would it take before we noticed? If you didn't hear it in your conversations with friends, you're talking about everything else, but the cross wasn't brought up, how long would it take before you and I noticed? If we're reading books and watching TV and spending our nights these ways, and we didn't hear the cross, how long would it take us days? Would it take us weeks? Would it take us months? Would it take us years? My guess is it would take us some time because we don't think a lot about the cross. We're not talking a lot about the cross. We're not living our lives enough in light of the cross. 
I want to be a kind of Christian and a kind of church. I want us to be a kind of Christians that are turning the world upside down. And the only way to do that is to be gripped by the cross. To be cross-centered, to be cross-dominated, to be cross-shaped, to be cross-bearing, to be cross-focused, to be cross-obsessed. That's the kind of Christians we need in this world. Because you see, the cross changes everything. It changes everything. And it's meant to change everything about you and about me. Let's pray. Father, give you praise that you are a God who has willingly sent your Son into this world to truly live a cross-centered life and then die a cross-centered death. We are thankful that these great miracles of the text are true, that the way to you has been opened, the grave has been opened, and the hearts of men and women and children can be opened. And oh, we would be people that are shaped and formed by the cross. There are those of us in this room that have not found ourselves at the foot of the cross looking up that, like that centurion and saying, truly, this is the Son of God. Would you open our hearts even today, by that grace that was purchased at the cross. And for those of us that have been united with our Savior upon that cross, have looked to Him in faith, may we have the grace to live in light of the cross. We might look more like our Savior, that we might actually be of good in this world, and that we might give glory to You, our King, God, who reigns in heaven. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.